Well, it's time for our lunchtime keynote here at the Verisage Symposium Day 2. An evening with Greg Kite in the afternoon, as I said. A uh, couple of quick uh, reminders on some things. This is the, the live stream of, of the, the show here, so HTTP voiceamerica.com, sorry, uh, folks who are not from America, voiceamerica.com slash live events. I did it this way so you know it's two E's, okay? So live events. And all the, thanks to the great work of the guys from Voice America, all of the stuff from yesterday is already up on the site. And I suspect that all of the stuff from today will be up on the site before you get on a plane today. So that's, that's some pretty great, great stuff. So thank you to them. So they've been a great sponsor for us. Terrific. Uh, Sage, uh, Thomas, thank you for, for having Sage sponsor this as well. Just to, to let you guys know, we're, and I've been weird because I'm an employee, but, but Thomas is my internal agent at Sage. Right. If I'm, my job is being Ed Kless, his, is, his, his job is promoting me, and it's, it's been fantastic working with him the last six months or so, because it's hard to promote yourself, right? And he just does, is a terrific ad, advocate for me. So Thomas, thank you very much. He was even able to finagle a Sage branded, you can probably take off the sticker, um, <laughs> Echo, <laughs> if you like, uh, Amazon Echo. This is available for guests only. Sorry, Matthew, you lost out on this because you became a fellow. <laughs> so if you just please give Thomas a card uh, at some point and we will just do some uh, raffle drawing at the, at the end of this, all right? So the, for the, the Amazon Echo Dot, all right? Uh, great. All right, now, without further ado, I hesitate because you never know what's going to happen here. Yeah. I, it, it's a book report. It's a book report. It's a book report yeah. from Greg Kite. It Ladies is. and gentlemen, Greg Kite. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Uh, thank you to Ed. Thank you to Sage. I do think it's hilarious that someone went way out of their way to make that a Sage branded Echo Dot. And Ed immediately undercuts it and says, but that's stupid. You can totally pick that sage crap off of it if you win it. I mean, I would barf. You know, I don't know what, what that is. I, uh, so I am doing a book report today because I have some very, very important insights into Ron Baker's book, Implementing Value Pricing, that I'm not sure if you would get just prima facie reading through that book. But I'm here to, to show you not just some of the unexplored depths of this seminal work, but, uh, but also to, uh, to make Ron miserable. Um, I, I, did, I did find it interesting, just right before Ed, Ed spoke, listening uh, to Ron uh, talk about the professional's guide to value pricing, which Ed, you call that the, 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 old, the old Testament, and I believe it's referred to, because that's the Old Testament, and implementing value pricing is the New Testament, but uh, the professional's guide to value pricing is the Old Testament because in, in, in that, you have more of an angry, vengeful Ron, where in <laughs> implementing value pricing, more, there is more of a forgiving, loving <laughs> Ron that you have. Um, so so let's, just, let's just get into that. So, uh, 
So first off, I just, I've got lots of quotes that really stuck out to me that really helped uh, change me, change my life, change my view of the world. And one of the things uh, at, the, at the heading of one of the chapters, uh, and actually I've got the pages if you'd like to reference this to your copy of Implementing Value Pricing. On page 41, the heading of the chapter gives this quote by David Ogilvy that says, Consumers judge the quality of a product by its price. Price is an ex- excellent signal to the consumer of the quality of the product. So it will come as no surprise to any of you that I am giving this presentation for free today <laughs> at absolutely no charge to anyone. Thank, thank you. Thank you. As connoisseurs, I know that's important to you. Um, this, this, this is really foundational. It's come up a couple times already during the conference. On page nine, Ron does uh, define value pricing. I think we have to keep this in mind throughout all of our discussions here. Value pricing is the maximum amount a given customer is willing to pay for a particular service before the work begins. That's the definition of value pricing. Now, again, from my the, the pondering that I've done upon this content, I believe there's a couple of alternate definitions for value pricing as well. Here's one of my alternate definitions, a simple concept that makes otherwise intelligent professionals completely lose their shit. Absolutely true. A third definition possibility, throwing it out there, this is from me, a pricing framework that Ron Baker has been able to stretch out to fill 350 pages of a book. Twice. At least twice. At least twice. Uh, Interesting, okay, interesting enough too. The next quote, page 12. All transformations are linguistic. This is something, this is a concept you may be familiar with because it's been said a hundred thousand times over the last 48 hours is that all transformations are linguistic. And the reason why it's been emphasized at least a hundred thousand times in the last 48 hours is because it's true. It's absolutely true. And it's not just true in business. It's true in biology. And you learned this in ninth grade in your biology class because one of the things you learn from any ninth grade biology textbook is that a frog can't turn, a tadpole can't turn into a frog until it's able to say, oh shit, I ain't got no legs. Then boom, magic happens. Transformation happens. A butter, a, a caterpillar does not turn into a butterfly until it says, "Help! Somebody get me out of this chrysalis!" Boom! That's when transformation happens because all transformation is linguistic. And listen, listen. You know when your kids hit puberty. If and only if, no, when and only when your daughter finally says those magic words, I hate you, mom and dad, boom, that's when puberty starts. Why? Because all transformation (laughs) is linguistic. Uh, On page 13, I mean, it doesn't have to get, I mean, it's a baker's dozen of pages into baker's book. When he jumps onto the the effing debate, the efficiency versus effectiveness debate, um, and and one way that Ron uses, and I think it's a great way to look at this in theory, a great way to look at this 
uh, to argue efficiencies uh, subordinate price to effectiveness is through this is it says cutting costs to improve efficiency is equivalent is the equivalent of Walt Disney cutting out three of Snow Wives dwarves to make a more efficient movie. It's a poignant point, but it's completely false because apparently what Ron didn't know and what maybe the rest of you are not aware of is that Walt Disney already cut four dwarves. It was originally Snow White and the 11 dwarves. <laughs> But Walt Disney, in his foresight, says nobody cares about that many dwarves. So we need to get it to a more efficient number of dwarves, which he found to be seven. But apparently Ron Baker feels like he's smarter than Walt Disney, is what it is. And if you're wondering, if you're wondering, the four dwarves that were cut out were Silly, Snazzy, Slappy, and Dan Morris. Now, next. Um, the next. <laughs> Dan Morris, unfortunately, not able to be with us this afternoon. Uh, on page four, four. Did you just snort? Ron snorted. Boom. That's when I pump my fist. Now, uh, Ron, a, a book that Ron wrote prior to implementing value was a book called Measure What Matters. So unsurprisingly, there's a section in this book titled Measure What <laughs> Matters. Uh, and in this, he says, he says, because you want, not only do you want to measure what matters, you, it, sometimes measurement is just bullcrap, and we're deceiving ourselves through measure, through the, through the, the even the, the act of measurement, right, Ron? Is that more or less correct? And so with that, and he says here, if uh, one does, and, and this again, it's a great, it's, a, it's an apt illustration. It says, one does not change one's weight by having a more accurate scale or by weighing yourself more frequently. That statement, half true. It's half true. You clearly will not change your weight by having a more accurate scale. However, you very much can change your weight by weighing yourself more often. Here's two ways you can do it, because this isn't just a value pricing conference, this is also a health and nutrition conference. Okay, one way you can change your price, your, your weight by weighing yourself more often is by putting your scale on the fifth floor and then weighing yourself every 20 minutes. Your quads will burn and you'll drop the weight immediately. A second way that you can change your weight by weighing yourself more frequently, possibly much easier, it just requires you to handle bad news by binge eating. You get on that scale, you don't like what you see, you get off, you eat a pint of Ben and Jerry's, you're gonna change your weight dramatically in a very, very short period of time. Because again, you gotta just think through these things a little harder before you hit send to Wiley. Now, the next one. Uh, a question, a, a great question, a, a, a question that I hope you know the answer to is the question, 
uh, where do profits come from? And, I, and I've, I've known you for six years now, and I've, I've seen Ron present in tons of different situations. And one of his favorite provocative questions that he likes to ask is the question, where do profits come from? And Ron doesn't just ask that question to provoke thought in his audiences. Ron genuinely wants to know where profits come from because Sam and Janine never gave him the talk about where profits come from, okay? Because Ron, you see it's, when an entrepreneur and a business model love each other very, very much, <laughs> the, the entrepreneur puts his scalable innovation into the business model's distribution channel. And, and, I, and that, I don't know why that shouldn't feel as dirty as that makes me feel to say that, but it does. It makes me feel very, very, very dirty. Um, okay, uh, but next. Uh, Customer, customer profit. We talk about that. There's, there's some different, uh, what, another uh, a synonym for customer profit is consumer surplus as well. Customer profit, consumer surplus. Um, Adrian was talking about this with his value on his reverse Forbach uh, thing where it's what you have to create this entire, uh, this entire amount of economic value. And that economic value that's created is shared between you as the service provider and your consumer. The consumer, if they don't feel like the, the, the service services you provide are worth more than the money they're giving you for those services, the transaction will happen. That's, that's the whole idea of customer surplus. And it says right here that in reality, there is no way for a seller to capture all of the economic value created. The buyer must also, it says here, the buyer must also earn a profit, which is true except for the items for sale in Sky Mall. Have you seen what they're selling in Sky? There's an item on Sky Mall that is called the NFL Wine Shoe Holder. It is a plastic stiletto high heel shoe that's hand painted with your favorite NFL team's logo and it's selling for $37 in Sky Mall. Now, not to give too much away, but if anyone pays $37 for the NFL shoe wine holder, there is no economic profit that's left for the consumer. Sky Mall has taken more than all of the value that's provided because arguably there is no value created in a plastic stiletto shoe that's hand-painted with your favorite NFL logo. And you might be asking, but wait, Greg, does this NFL shoe wine holder chill the wine? No, it holds the wine. Wait, is this for bottles of wine that were not engineered to stand on their own? Absolutely not. Your bottle of wine will stand perfectly fine without this item, yet you can purchase it for $37. And you think, how did this item even come into the world where clearly the brilliant people at Sky Mall got together and they said, hey guys, what goes together better than stiletto shoes, fine wine, and professional football? And the funny thing is the answer to that question is any three things go together better than fine wine, stiletto shoes, and professional football. Next. Uh, 28. Carl Menger explains in his book, 
principles of economics that value does not exist outside the consciousness of men. This is the subjective theory of value. That value resides, it's kind of like the, uh, the idea that value is a feeling, okay? And it says, a very poignant quote, value does not exist outside the consciousness of men. And because of this quote, every time my daughter would ask me for an American girl doll, I would knock her unconscious. You guys are laughing a little too hard about my joke about <laughs> child abuse. Now, uh, the water diamond paradox. You guys are f familiar with the water diamond paradox? You guys nod your head or something, or maybe you're not. Okay, if you're not, that's fantastic, because this is actually a very interesting concept to explore. The whole idea of the water diamond paradox is this, is that water is incredibly useful, but it's also incredibly cheap. Diamonds, not very useful at all, yet they're incredibly expensive. And so the, the water diamond paradox is like, okay, in terms of pricing, why did that happen? Because you'd think that the more useful something is, the, uh, the, 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 more, uh, the more it should cost, right? You're not going to die of, of uh, diamond dehydration or whatever it would be called, okay? Not that. Now, I have some personal theories about this. I think part of the reason why water is priced less is because there's more risk on the consumer from purchasing the water because water can be incredibly dangerous, okay? Uh, Provo, Utah flooded back in 2013 and I, my basement did not suffer any diamond damage as a result of that, okay? There's been no civil rights protest where the protesters have been hit by a diamond cannon, nor have there been any terrorists, suspected terrorists, who have been diamond boarded. Water's incredibly dangerous, and if you're willing to adopt that risk, possibly your cost should be slightly less, okay? That's a theory. It's wrong, but it's a theory, okay? The correct, the correct theory is Gosen's Law, which states that the market price is always determined by what the last unit of a product is worth to people. The market price of a good reflects the last uses of the good for the aggregate of all consumers of the good. So the very last thing that people are going to use whatever the good for is how that book should be priced. Now, it may be surprising to you that the book Implementing Value Pricing retails for $63.93 on Amazon as of 11 o'clock p.m. last night. Now, the interesting thing is, is just today, I used several pages of this book as toilet paper, <laughs> which I believe is the last use of the good. $63.93, Ron? I don't think so. It's not even quilted. <laughs> and you know what? The flip side of this, no one washes their butt with diamonds except Donald Trump and Madonna. Now, uh, next quote, page 32. Pricing is an art. It is never a science. Absolutely true. And the proof of that statement is that, uh, well, it's absolutely true, but it's weird is what it is because artists suck at pricing so hard. Think about it, you've never heard of a starving scientist. <laughs> pricing is incredibly important. 
Pricing is a huge, that's why we're here. Pricing is incredibly important. Pricing is one of the biggest levers that you can pull because a small change in pricing can have a dramatic effect on the bottom line for your business. Rafi Muhammad, in his book, The 1% Windfall, says that if Sears raised their prices by 1% with no change in demand, its profits would increase by 155%. A 1% change in Sears pricing with no change in demand would result in a 155% increase in profits, which is an amazing statistic, although it's based on the false premise that there is a non-zero demand for the items at sale at Sears. They're in, ba- they're in bankruptcy. Do they not have Sears in Melbourne? Is that, is that not a company that you're familiar with? Their products are shit? Is that not... Okay, no, that's okay. These aren't all winners. We'll cut that out of the feed. Okay. <laughs> Next, I, do, I would like to discuss this. A business is what it charges for, okay? A business is what it charges for. As I've thought this through, and I've spent a lot of time thinking this through, as I've thought this true, sometimes this is absolutely true, sometimes it's absolutely false, okay? Quick story about me, all right? I, uh, at one point, I, uh, I bought, are you guys familiar with the product Extends Natural Male Enhancement? Uh, yeah, are, are you? I really want to know, are you? Okay, because I am not the way you're thinking. Here's what it was. I was, I was watching TV. Yeah, maybe it was 2.30 in the morning. Yeah, maybe an advertisement for Extends Natural Male Enhancement came on the TV. And they said, hey, if you contact us, we'll give you a free sample, no strings attached, of Extends Natural Male Enhancement. And I said, you're damn right I want a free sample of Extends Natural Male Enhancement. Not because of whatever Kurt's thinking, if you look at the weird expression on his face right now. No, it's because it was approaching Christmas time. And I I thought that would be the best white elephant gift ever to give anyone is a free sample of like a dozen dick pills. Hilarious, right? Hilarious. So I I went and I got them and I, I got these natural male enhancement pills. I gave it away at the white elephant gift exchange. It was a hit. I was a hero, right? But that's not where the story ends because then every month since then, I get a call from some pushy salesman at Extends Natural Male Enhancement, and I try to tell them I didn't buy it for me. I bought it as a gag gift, and they go, yeah, right, that's what everybody says. And I'm like, I'm serious. So here's the thing, okay? Extends Natural Male Enhancement, they are what they charge for because they're a bunch of big dicks. Okay, now, conversely, stay with me. Conversely, Verizon, what do they charge for? Cellular telephone service. But here's the other thing, from my experience with Verizon customer service, they should sell below ground donkey stables. That should be one of the things that they should sell. Okay, visualize it in your head. 
Verizon should not only sell, actually they probably shouldn't, based on my experience with our customer service, they should probably sell exclusively below ground donkey stables because everyone in their customer service department is an asshole. If they charge, you wit, ass, an ah. Okay, okay, all right, okay. Okay, next. Market segmentation, let's talk about it. All right? People buy emotionally. This is, a, this is actually a profound thing to think about. And it's really profound to think about in terms of your own purchasing decisions, too, because it's easy to call BS on this and say it's not true. But it says people buy emotionally and justify their purchase intellectually. Okay? All right? I'm going to say it again. People buy emotionally and they justify their purchase intellectually. So Tim Williams this morning talked about us creating a buyer persona, okay? You need to have a detailed description of the perfect buyer for your services. So I would go out on a limb to say that if this statement is true, that people buy emotionally and justify intellectually, your buyer persona should say that you want to target the market of people who are really, really sad, yet really, really smart, because they'll buy anything. They'll buy anything. I want to target uh, a, a market of Mensa members with Zoloft prescriptions, <laughs> is what I want, okay? That's my buyer persona, very detailed, very segmented market. Now, this is exciting. Any, this is from a customer's, you gotta, when you're doing all this pricing, you gotta put yourself in the shoes of the customer that you're trying to get. And so from a customer's perspective, any purchase entails risks and services are riskier than products. So your, since we're service providers, our services are pretty risky. But an interesting insight is this, is that usually all things being equal when the service uh, provide the, the service provider that offers the lowest perceived risk by the consumer they'll get chosen by the consumer do you see that services are risky because with a product you can if you if you hate it you can return it with a service the service is provided and it might suck but you might go well anywhere else i go could also suck okay this is at least a known quantity so i'll stay with these guys and if you reduce your risk if somebody new to the market, they're probably gonna stay with you because they think this is my best bet. And there's all sorts of different risks, whether that's price risk or other kinds of risk or health risks or whatever. There's health risks, there's, it's, it's there. There's risks that you need to mitigate. Look at page 46, they're listed on there. I put the page on it, okay? But then, as, as Ron's talking about this, again, from the, from the consumer's perspective, he brings up this, and it's, it's, the, it's the well-known, he says it's well-known, it's a well-known actuary, uh, actuarial ax axiom that says, uh, there is no such thing as a bad risk, just a bad premium, okay? There's no such thing as a bad risk, just a bad premium. And I tell myself that every year when I play Russian roulette right after renewing my life insurance policy, okay? Because my premiums are amazing through the AICPA. I've got amazing premiums. So I'll be like just sitting there crying, going, there is no bad risk, only bad premiums. January 31st, every year, my house. Now, too dark? Sorry. <laughs> Was a little too dark? <laughs> 
I don't do that, okay? Just page 16 in Implement Value Pricing, it says, for a firm to be truly innovative, it must not only do new things, it must stop doing old things, right? Right, you can't just continue to do, you can't just continue to add to what you're doing. You gotta get rid of, of old stuff. And the human body says the human body has an automatic mechanism to discharge waste but it appears that the corporate body does not. Not true, because as I've already established, the people at Verizon are a bunch of assholes. <laughs> price discrimination. You're aware of price discrimination. It's a great tool to be able to extract more of the consumer surplus from your people. Three different types of price discrimination. You may or may not be familiar with this, okay? These are great ways to use, well, and, and that's the thing is that with price, there's three degrees of price discrimination because apparently the people who, uh, who, who uh, created the, the taxonomy of price discrimination are also the same people who decided there was three degrees of, of sunburns. Like, I'm assuming it's the same people, right? So the third degree price discrimination is when you charge different prices to different markets. Second degree price discrimination is when you charge the same customer different prices for identical goods. And third degree price discrimination is when your prices are so hot they'll, call, they'll cause blisters and irritation. Okay, I stumbled over that. You're right not to laugh. Next. Uh, uh, Price, again, talking about price discrimination, there's very, very creative ways that different businesses have, have come to, 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 to implement price discrimination with their, with their target market. And Ron says that we should become observant of how businesses innovate pricing strategies to extract a larger portion of consumer surplus. It is the holy grail of pricing, okay? That's on page 62. He tells you what the holy grail is of pricing. Do you think you should seek after the holy grail of pricing? You're damn right you should, because if you know anything about the holy grail, that was the cup that Jesus used at the Last Supper to pass around the wine. And Jesus knew that Simon the Zealot, he would be totally willing to pay like 40 denarii for some Opus One wine, because he loved wine. But Jesus also knew that, that Matthew, he was so cheap, he'd like maybe pay half a shekel for a glass of Franzia straight out of the box. So here's the takeaway is this, is that you will be amazing at your pricing if you were omniscient like Jesus. <laughs> and finally, because I only got to page 62. <laughs> When it, <laughs> when it comes to price discrimination, there's a really, really interesting, and this I think would be a second, tell me if this, I think this is a second degree price discrimination is a hardcover versus paperback. Because in effect, it's, a, and it's an identical product. The only difference is the cover is what, is what you have. And apparently, the manufacturing costs, I, did, I was unaware of this till reading Ron's Enlightening book, the manufacturing costs are almost identical between, they're, they're at least negligible between a hardcover and a paperback. Did you know that? I had no idea. But there's perceived value in a hardcover that's not there for a paperback. And hardcovers are also released earlier. So what you'll see is this is gonna segment people not just the hardcover paperback, but also the early release, late release of these books is that you'll segment your, your, your customers into diehard fans 
versus people who are just interested. Okay, and you'll be able to capture more. You're going to make your uh, more of a triangular uh, uh, thingy that Tim showed us. What was the tri the triangle versus the square on the demand curve? It was on one of your slides. Was that somebody? That wasn't you. I swear it was, but it's okay. Who was that? Do you guys know what I'm talking about? No. Yeah. Up the hill, yeah. So you're trying to you're trying to capture more of it, and that, this is how this is how you do it. Because what we find, like with Harry Potter, you get these diehard fans who would show up at midnight in costume and wait in a line to pay forty dollars for a brand new Harry Potter book. And the funny thing is, every time Ron releases a new book, people come out in costume and line up at midnight as well. The, the most popular costumes are the costumes of uh, Peter Drucker, Ludwig von Mises, and Sam Baker. Now, the other... <laughs> But the inter but listen, the, in the interesting thing about this is in implementing value pricing, it talks about how the hardcover paperback uh, strategy is such an effective way to price your book, but implementing value pricing has never come out in a paperback book, which is proof that no one important at Wiley has ever read any of Ron's books <laughs> ever. Okay, thank you guys so much. That's my book report for this year.